Welcome to Productivity Book Group. I'm your host and facilitator, Ray Sidney Smith. Thanks for listening in on Productivity Book Group's live discussion call of The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results by Gary Keller with Jay Papasan. And so Gary Keller is the co-founder and chairman of the board uh, of Keller Williams Realty International, which he started from a single office in Austin, Texas, and it has now become the largest real estate franchising company in the United States. And uh, Gary defines leadership as, quote, teaching people how to think the way they need to think so they can do what they need to do when they need to do it so they can get what they want when they want it. <laughs> Close quote. That is a tongue twister. Uh, Jay Papasan is the author of many books, mostly on real estate. He's the vice president of publishing and, and the executive director at Keller Williams Realty, Inc. And so a little bit about the book. I reduxed this. Actually, I'm going to read this piece here because I think this is maybe more useful. Um, it says here, the one thing is the number one Wall Street Journal bestseller and has been featured on more than 130 bestseller lists, including the New York Times and USA Today. Written by the authors that I just mentioned, Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, the book demonstrates that the results you get are directly influenced by the way you work and the choices you make. It teaches you how to identify the lies that block your success and the thieves that steal time from your day. And it shows you how to identify your one thing and accomplish more by doing less. And so with those introductions out of the way, let's get into the conversation, which is what were your initial uh, kind of perceptions of the book? What did you think about the book before you read it? And if this is a reread, what did you expect to achieve from having read the book this time around? Initial thoughts? Frank, you want to you wanna start us off? Yeah, uh, for, for me, it, it was the first time reading in depth. I think when I had seen it before, it was sort of like in the bookstore at the airport. When I first skimmed it, my thoughts were, nah, you know, it sounds like forget everything else. Just do one thing. And I'm thinking, okay, well, who's going to empty the dishwasher? Who, who's going to do all the things that somebody's got to do? When I read it more in depth, um, I got a different perspective that it was the... It, it, it was almost like the David Allen next action approach. You know, what is it that you want? So what's the one thing that you could do right now that's going to help get you there? So to me, it was a much softer um, and much more doable thing. Anyone else? This is Linda. Just to bounce off of what Frank said, I had the same reaction about GTD. And I think that he kind of connects that next action thing to the higher, you know, a little bit of connection between that and the higher horizons. And it feels, it was kind of interesting that way, but I had the same reaction. I thought it was like, okay, now you have focus on one thing and nothing else. I realized, yeah, this is just kind of GTD uh, expressed a different way. This is Lee. I had, I had mixed reactions to this book. I think as a book overall, it has some flaws. Um, when I started off, I had the same reaction that, that Frank and Linda did about, okay, I, I like Frank's who's going to load the dishwasher. Um, so it took me a while to really warm up to it. And it was really in the second part where he starts talking about how to implement it. And he talks about, you need a one thing for each of what GTD would call your role. Um, and, and as he goes through the later part of the book, to me, it, it connects the higher levels. It's really kind of an overlay over GTD. So GTD is going to help you take care of all those pieces you have to keep track of. Um, but this is really, as Linda said, taking the higher levels, really, it really has an approach toward 
how to deal with the higher levels in a way that GTD kind of has an outline and a hand wave toward it, but doesn't really tie the dots together. And I thought in his implementation section, he actually did start putting the dots together. So I had time for a quick read through, but I'm definitely back to work through in more detail. I usually consider myself someone who remembers most of what I read, and that being the case, um, there's a little bit of um, kind of Dunning-Kruger effect, because after 400, now closing on 500 books in the personal productivity space, I can't possibly remember everything I've read, (laughs) but I tend to think I do. And I picked this book up really having a sense of the book and being completely changed in terms of what I thought the book was about. And, and, And again, I read this you know, when it was originally published. And so uh, coming back to it, I just thought, oh, you know, I've read book summaries of it on occasion here and there. And so I sat down with it and I was, I was like, what, this is in there? I didn't remember this being in there. And it may be the fact that I kind of disregarded it because it was information I already knew. And so it was, it was like, okay, well, I already know that. Oh yeah, I already know that also. But thinking about it in a more cohesive fashion really helped me um, position the book for what value it could bring to someone who really never knew any of the things in this book before, right? I think as a as a individual coming at the one thing and really understanding where the book is positioned at, you know, this is a um, the owner of a global um, real estate franchising company and they teach this to their real estate agents and that's where this book is really aimed toward. It happens to find this great appeal among a broader audience, but really focused in on that audience, I can really see how it can benefit them. Talking about time blocking, for example, didn't remember that being in there at all, <laughs> to be quite honest. I was like, oh, that, that's that's totally in there. And he, he starts talking about those functions um, quite nicely. And having and being a, a big fan of Dr. Neil Fiore, um, uh, the author of The Now Habit and The Now Habit at Work, uh, don't read The Now Habit at Work, just read The Now Habit. Uh, and uh, just really, really um, great material in terms of understanding how to follow a method for putting things into your calendar. I thought those were really, those, those were really valuable pieces, but I also echo, echo the same sentiments um, from you all so far with that there were some pieces that seemed a little bit disjointed. Uh, it seemed like he took, or he and Papasan really understood a lot about different pieces of, of productivity materials and kind of tried to push them together. And I know what that feels like as someone who is in the process of um, working through his own um, sense of personal productivity frameworks and whatnot, it, it is very difficult to kind of like figure out how to make those pieces cohesive while still um, having a narrative that makes sense for any any other um, kind of thoughts around kind of initial thoughts around the book when you opened it up? Okay. I had kind of a, uh, this is Linda, I, I had the kind of a wave of re- reaction to the book. I started reading it months ago and finished it this morning, which says a lot about me. Um, <laughs> but I, I was really excited about the book when I first started reading. It. And then there was this kind of dip in the middle where he, there were some things I didn't quite disagree with. And I really kind of, which was good because it made me not just say rah, 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 but like, Oh, I'm thinking about these things. And then at the end, it kind of got me back. I mean, I, I was kind of like inspired at the end of the book. So I had that kind of like up down thing going on when I read it. I have to admit, I, I listened to an audiobook summary this morning in preparation and you know, just kind of like to refresh everything because I had read the book now 
a bit more than a month ago in preparation for today. And so I thought, oh, that's a little far. You know, I better I better bone up on it. So let me uh, go ahead and listen to this audio summary. And it was really interesting to listen to the audio summary because it kind of took out the boring bits. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is actually really quite succinct and nice to get all of the steps kind of in a very quick succession. And uh, so that was really nice. And um, but yeah, so so I think I think there were some parts of the book that could have been tightened up. But you know, every everyone um, kind of reads things differently. I'm I'm curious in uh, and I'm, I'm now lifting here from the discussion guide, because I thought it was a really good one. In chapter one, um, the uh, the authors basically uh, say extraordinary result extraordinary results are directly determined by how narrow you can make your focus and of course this is one of the central premises of the book itself right which is that um, you can uh, get more accomplished not get more done but get more accomplished in life if you have fewer things to focus on and that itself creates this um, compound effect ultimately agree disagree where where do your thoughts lie around um, the realities of what, you know, Frank noted earlier, which is, you know, someone's got to unload the dishwasher, you know, how's that going to happen? Uh, but at the same time that we have these, this goal orientation that we can get more done if we uh, first start out with fewer things. The what, what are your thoughts there in terms of that premise? Well, I think the easy answer is yes, that makes sense. The hard answer is, you know, how do you do? Okay, I, I got to cut down and over the next couple of weeks, I want this and this and this. All right, well, that's great. But then, oh gosh, well, what about this and this and this and this and the phone calls to return and so forth and so on? Can I really push all of that out two weeks, et cetera? So, you know, I think it's it's great to think about, yeah, only going to concentrate on a few things, but then it's like, well, when is the rest? Um, And I guess I tend to operate from the standpoint of kind of, you know, put the big rocks in. But then let's put those little rocks in somewhere. Let's let's have those low priority things around because they're things that we decided we were going to do. And instead of just letting them pile up, let's find some way to work them in between the big things, which is kind of another challenge in itself. This is Linda. I had that reaction of like, okay, so it felt like the beginning of the book was saying, pick one thing and focus on one thing and do one thing. And by the end of the book, it was like, well, ask yourself this question about all the things you have to do. So to me, that was kind of a little bit of a contradiction. It was like, okay, then there's that part in the book where it says, take four hours out of your day and spend it on that, your one thing. So then I was like, okay, so this is it. So you're spending four hours of your day on this one thing. And then the rest of your day, you would hopefully, I would think, be like, these are the other areas of my life that are outside this one thing. What is the one thing that will move these areas forward? That's kind of how I read it in total. But it did have that kind of like at the beginning of the book, you get, I got the feeling like, okay, I can only do one thing, which is really hard because there's a lot of stuff to do. You know, I, I guess when I was at the airport, I must have been thumbing through the first part of the book more than, than anything else. Um, and, you, you know, I'll say, you know, spending four hours, you know, spending half of your work day on the one thing, you know, I think is a little excessive. Now, you know, going way back to like Charles Hobbs with Time Power, where he, he talked about having that quiet hour. I, I, I think it was Charles Hobbs, but I know a number of authors that talked about having having a chunk of time. And if you could get an hour, no phone calls, no drop in visitors where you could 
literally work on that important thing. You know, you can get tons done. You know, people talk about, I go into work on Saturday morning and I get more done in an hour than I get done with everybody interrupted. So I think that that dedicated time when you're uninterrupted is important. I just don't know if I could get, I don't know if anybody, four hours. Yeah, it seems, I think I agree with you. That's a bit excessive. I think that there are some missing elements from the one thing that I, I think he just wanted to give people some latitude with regard to structuring their world while still saying something maybe dramatic to get your attention, right? Like if you say, half of an eight hour day uh, needs to be dedicated to the one thing that's going to, that's going to wake you up and start thinking about, well, if he wants me to spend half of my eight hour day working on this one thing, and I know I'm not going to get there. It's kind of like, you know, if, uh, if dentists tell you to brush your teeth three times a day, most people are going to brush once and that's probably good enough. Like it's (laughs) it's kind of pushing you. Uh, It's kind of how I read it. Um, At the same time, I think that there are, there are things that we have to recognize about, any focused goal, which is that if we are attempting to get toward a goal, we're going to spend more time perhaps upfront in structure and organization, and there's going to be greater momentum at the beginning stages of any major, you know, kind of major impact project we're going to move forward in our world. And as you make your way forward toward that goal, you get compound skills like there's there's the benefit of compound skills. So you start doing things better because you're more hopefully aware of what's necessary. You get better at the skills necessary to make that thing happen. And so not as much time is needed to move things forward faster as you make your way toward the end of some goals, not all, but but some. And so I, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this notion that you have to put in all of this time throughout the entire one thing process. I think upfront, you probably have to put in more time. There's planning and skills and resources that need to be put into place. And on the, on the as you get your way you know, like if you're, if your one thing is to become a violinist, um, you know, there's practice time, but there isn't all of the upstart cost of like figuring out how to do whatever violinists do to prepare to play, <laughs> you know, like, you know, there's all of this other work that probably, you know, you're a musician, Frank, you know what it's like yeah. as an early musician, that there's a lot more work and energy dedicated toward the getting to the practice than just sitting down and practicing. And once you are skilled at that, then the practice time is actually much more concentrated. It's much more useful and fruitful in that shorter period of time. So you don't need as much time is kind of how I'm perceiving it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm that's kind of how I see it. I'm, I'm going to jump, this is Lee, I'm going to jump in with a counterpoint to this. Um, I think four hours is somewhere between reasonable and in some cases not enough. Um, and part of that comes from my experience in my day job where um, I'm actually measured on billable hours and we're contracted to go make things happen. Um, And they aren't necessarily all my aspirational personal things, but from having worked in that space, big projects simply take a bunch of time devoted to them to make the stuff happen, building stuff. Depends a lot on on what it is you're trying to build and, and what it is you're trying to accomplish. But that that actually resonated with me in the in the in the same space that Linda and Frank mentioned of 
what do you do about those other roles? Because I have, I'm on a board of, I'm on a working board of a food co-op. So I have a whole pile of stuff that's like a second day job um, that I have to manage there. And that also takes chunks of time. And that, that's part of why this book resonated so much is I'm having to kind of refactor my practice. Um, the other piece of this that I think is really important is his focus on saying no, which yeah, Frank's right. You can't just let the whole world of all your other stuff go for two weeks most of the time. But you do have to really pick and choose. And some of that stuff probably is going to fall on the floor. And he's pretty open. But so, I have a counter to what you were saying, Ray, because I think he really emphasizes, I, I got a lot out of the mastery. I think that's the name of the chapter. And I think his point is, is that we kind of do what you're describing. We spend a lot of time when we're first starting something or doing something or learning something. And then as we get to a certain level, we feel like we don't need to spend as much time. And I think his point was, if you want to be excellent and achieve amazing results, you need to push past that ceiling of I'm good enough, or this is, this is great. I'm doing fine. And I don't need to. So I think that was part of that point of that four hours is like, you, you need to keep that consistent. I liked his example of Stephen King, you know, that he had a very set schedule and, you know, like most writers do, but he had a very set schedule of exactly what he would do. And I think that mastery thing was to me really struck a chord of like, if you really want to do something, you need to spend time and, and then you need to push yourself past that. Okay. I know how to do this limit. Yeah. And so they're, they're like, multiple kind of avenues here in terms of like what the one thing is and what it really means. Uh, you know, I talk about skills mastery quite often and skills mastery really requires you determining a metric or a standard for what is excellence. And so when we, when we understand what that's, that skill is and what excellence is, then that really makes everything much more approachable. And the, the, the notion that we can do that in one category of our life and not and not all of them is something that's very demotivating for many people. And so I'm always trying to navigate between those two kind of poles, which is like, okay, if I'm going to be using a really poor example, because I know nothing about this, which is like a world-class violinist, right? Um, you know, then, then there are other things in your life that need to um, not be done that I, I don't think is true. I, I don't think that you can, you can, you can be a wonderful parent. You can be a wonderful spouse. You can be. You could have, uh, you know, other parts of your life that are are vibrant and wonderful, and still be a world class violinist. Um, I, I just I think that manifesting the 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 notion that you have to give up some part of your life in order to achieve something great, I don't think is true. Um, but at the same time, I also recognize that exactly what you said, uh, Lee, which is that you do have to learn no, right? Like saying no to certain things that are just really like want to haves, but not not needs are frequently overpowering. It's like FOMO, right? We all want everything that we, we want, um, but we don't need those things. And so like it's navigating those two pieces. I don't know if I'm really saying it clearly enough. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm, um, my, my thoughts aren't evolved enough to come out of my mouth clearly enough. <laughs> but um, the notion though, is that like, if we, if we set particular standards in our world, let me say it better. Right. So like, so say my, my standard for being a, a brother is not the same standard for my being uh, a CEO. They're just different standards. So 
to build up the right skills to do those things don't require the same amount of effort nor the same amount of time, certainly not the same amount of time. Like being a brother um, is a, a heck of a lot less time today than it probably was when we were younger and lived at home together and those kinds of things, right? So it's like changing dynamics in the world just seems so different to me. I don't know, I, I'm, I'm curious, Linda, like when you think about like the notion of, of setting a standard of excellence, what does that what does that feel for you in terms of like time and um, like mental emotional energy and keeping that going for some like period of time going into the future to get to the to the I don't know if it's the end result but for me it's like a standard of of competence in that area I don't really think about the end result I think about the ongoing standard of competence in in, in a particular area well I mean for me it was I I just started learning something new and um. I was really excited that I could actually do it. You know, I had that moment of like, oh, I can do this. And then when I read that mastery, I was like, oh, I could really take this to another level. Like I could really learn how to do this. I could learn how to do this to the point where people pay me to do it. I could learn how to do this to the point where I'm like one of the best people out there doing it. You know, like it inspired, it honestly inspired. Now I don't see it as like, I'm going to do that 24 hours a day and nothing else is going to happen. But like four hours is not, I mean, four hours is a chunk of the day. I get that. I had the same reaction of like, okay, what day has four hours that aren't interrupted by something? You know, like everything's chopped up, but we have 24 hours. And if your one thing is related to whatever your work is, and you're already setting aside those eight to 10 hours a day to work. I mean, if that one thing moves you, I think their point is that one thing is going to move you forward so much more quickly than all the piddly little things you think are important that you're saying yes to. It's going to make a huge dramatic change in your work. And if you're trying to master a skill or something, then really to do that, you've got to spend the time. I mean, at least in the beginning, like you said, Ray, I mean, I'm sure it does taper off, but then to me, it's like, do you want to jump to that next level? I mean, I spent many, many years working hours and hours on my writing and I've gotten to a level and I actually said to myself, I'm happy with the level where my writing is. I don't need a lot of spend a lot of time on that. There's other things I want to do right now. I'm focusing on something else. And I'm okay with that, but I think it's just a choice. But if you want to like get where he's, you know, he keeps talking all this, you know, success, success, success. I think that's what he's talking to is that if you want to really stand out, he uses Steve Jobs as an example, for example. So, I mean, you know, I think that's what he's talking to. And I have an ongoing problem with people setting standards for people who are like the best in the world of something, you know, like I'm not trying to be like uh, Jeff Bezos ever. I don't have any interest in being like Jeff Bezos. I don't have any interest in being Oprah Winfrey. You know, I don't have an interest in being, you know, a world renowned celebrity of that level. I don't want to be a trillionaire, you know, that's like not in my life goals. Right. But (laughs) That's that's the part of the book I had a problem with. Simple things are not good and success is important. This certain type of success. I had issues with productive people are more successful. All those, that's the part of the book that kind of went, I was like, "Hmm, are these my values? Because I know some very productive people who don't make a lot of money, who are very efficient and productive and get a lot done, but they don't necessarily, they're not on the cover of time. Yeah. And they're content in life. And they're he happy. actually, he actually does. It's kind of buried as an aside, but in a couple of places, he does kind of admit that money isn't necessarily the definer for success. In fact, a couple times he's kind of open about society has tended to define it that way, 
but you have to pick what your one thing is. And I think one does. I think Linda's approach is the right one of we all have lots of things we can do and you you do end up picking and choosing. It's like if you get something that you need or want to do to a level that is satisfactory for what you want and that's not what you're pursuing, that you're off pursuing something else, then there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I'm good enough at that for what I want or need it to be, and I'm moving on to this other thing. And I think, I think that's there in the in the fringes of what he talks about in how you decide what it is that your one thing is. So if your one thing is some some artistic or noble pursuit that society doesn't happen to reward very much monetarily, I don't think that's really in conflict with the book, even if it's maybe a little about a little out of his, his center path. Yeah, like, yeah. To just... that, that point struck me also, having a background in education, uh, you know, as you're more successful, if you're a good first grade teacher, you're now an outstanding first grade teacher, and then you're the best first grade teacher in the whole state, you're still making the same amount of money. It's still the salary schedule. Now, that may lead to another job that may lead to a principalship, but you have to step outside of being a teacher in order for that to happen. So in not every field is success uh, going to parallel the amount of money that you make. Also, there's those of us who really value variety. I'm one of those people and I know people who are like that. So your one thing can be, I'm going to be a renaissance person. You know, I'm going to do the Leonardo da Vinci. I'm going to pursue all these different avenues, or I'm going to be a researcher. I'm going to be, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be violin or, you know, it could be a lifestyle, I guess is what I'm saying in my mind. Because there are a lot of people who are like, don't make me pick one thing. I want to explore and I want to be a person who does new stuff all the time. I don't want to be playing the same violin every day for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I'm out of the, I'm out of the what am I going to do when I grow up phase of life? And maybe they'll, <laughs> um, and, but you know, like that's not because I, I just don't care about money in the same way other people do. I care about in my life experience. I am, I, I'm a very much believer in the fact that I don't know what happens after I'm put six feet under or cremated or whatever happens to my body. But I want to make sure that the time I have here and now is utilized in the best possible way. And so my experience is much more important than the thing. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, like I want to I want to become proficient in as many languages as possible in the time that I have. And that means that I can't become fluent in every language, which means that I need to choose a standard. And so I've gone out there and I've looked at all the various testing standards for what makes someone fluent in a particular language. And so my one thing then becomes becoming proficient to that level for that language. And then I'm there and then I move on to the next thing. And I hope that I retain some level of my <laughs> proficiency the next time I hear someone speaking Swedish in the grocery store. And I'm like, oh, I can use that skill. Um, you know, so it, it's, I, I don't know why, maybe it's maybe a little bit more soft for me, the the notion of these one things, because they're they're not these hard deliverables for for anything. You know, it's not like I'm achieving some pinnacle of of what, um, Keller notes as success, I'm achieving 
the very, what I consider kind of low level success, but is exactly what I want. Like I want to reach that level and then that's it. And I'm very, very comfortable with knowing that that's where I'm going to hit. And then I'll go on to the next thing. And that's very, I'm very comfortable with that notion. I don't know why, but I am. He mentions that towards the end of the book too, which I read this morning. So I remember it really well <laughs> um, about that. Your one thing isn't necessarily going to be the same thing. It's going to, it may change and you know, it's not, and I think everybody's different. Everybody has a different, like you said, you have this, you have an idea of what you want to get and you're going to get there. And, and then other people, you know, want to be on the cover of time and other people want to just be happy and, you know, be in their garden. Yeah. And it's, and it's, what's the one thing that you, that you can do now that's going to help you get whatever. And if it changes, then that one next thing also changes. Ray, I admire you for trying to learn so many languages. I'm, I'm trying to master English, right? And after 61 years, I think I just about got it. You know, the fun part is that in learning any language, you're actually learning culture. And so you have to think like the person you're speaking to. And that allows me to, to put myself in somebody else's shoes um, or whatever they wear. Um, and, uh, you know, like that, that really does help me in so many ways because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy from Brooklyn, you know, we, I was raised in a particular way with a particular mindset and having the opportunity to think about um, coming out of a, uh, a life circumstance and then thinking about other people and other cultures uh, and then communicating them with them in their way, in the way in which their culture um, has brought them up to think is, um, I, don't, I don't know, it's just very, um, it feels bleeding edge. It feels expansive. Uh, and, I, and I really like that notion. And, you know, I love people. So uh, the notion of being able to communicate with people in the way people want to be communicated with is something that is very powerful. Um, but moving right along in our conversation, I, I wanted us to talk a little bit about the, um, the concept in the book about prioritization. And they he talks about prioritization. We've been kind of touching around it, but he, he thinks about priorities in a very specific way. And I was curious about what your reflections on that function in, in the book about prioritizing, um, you know, kind of surfaced for you. Um, what kinds of priorities are worth um, basically being out of balance, as he calls it, right? Like being in balance. And then, of course, he talks about this balanced life in chapter seven. Uh, but then he goes on to talking about what are the things that you prioritize that will take you out of balance and for how long you stay out of balance in those in that space. So what are your thoughts on kind of, you know, a balanced life, as he talks about? And then, of course, what are the things worth being out of balance for in, in that the one thing perspective. You know, to me, the thing about the counterbalance really, really stood out that, you know, that there are going to be points in your life where you are very much out of balance. Um, you know, if, if I worked in retail, for example, uh, right around Christmas time, my life would be very much out of balance. I'd be at the store all the time. Um, Mid-January, that would change considerably. You know, if I was a priest leading up to Easter, Holy Week, you know, it would be all work. And then, you know, as soon as Easter's over and nobody's coming to church the next week, uh, you know, th so th that there's sort of s stages in your life and it, it's not going to be a perfect balance all the time. It's always going to be a little out of balance one way or the other, but just not to let that out of balance continue 
forever. So this this part really resonated with me because I feel like we've always wanted, you know, we always talk about life work balance or personal work balance. And I think that chapter really hit home for me. And the counterbalance part, I agree with Frank, was um, a huge piece for me. There was a part in that book, um, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it talks about the balls that he's juggling. And, you, you, you know, you're juggling different balls. I think he's talking about, like, there's five balls. One is family, relationships, health. Um, I'm forgetting the fourth one. And the fifth one was work. And he says, you know, just think of everything is made is a glass ball, but the work ball is rubber. And then Mm. the work ball will always bounce back. And I thought to myself, that I don't, for me, that resonated so well because that is true. You know, we constantly all, you know, I, I can speak for myself, we're constantly putting ourselves so much into work. And forgetting about all the other things and your health and your family, your relationships. Um, But the counterbalance part of it, I think, really resonated with me. And the work one, you know, if you do drop a ball here and there, it'll it'll bounce back. But if you drop the ball significantly on your health, that's much more, you hope you can bounce back. Um, But, you know, there's definitely a harder part in relationships as well. So um, I I thought the counterbalance piece really sat well with me because the work-life balance has always been one of those things that's constantly eating away at me. Yeah, the the thing with the rubber ball, I I really like that as well. had never heard it put like that, that all those other balls are made out of glass. You drop it, it it breaks the rubber. You know, and I guess that's true. Any of us, if um, if we were to leave this earth tomorrow, our job would be posted by five o'clock the same day. They'd interview somebody else would be in there to fill that slot and life not so with family. Any other thoughts on prioritization and balance? All right, let's move on in the conversation to later in the book. And um, he, he talks about uh, breaking up your life into different uh, buckets, and we, we um, touched on the idea of the the concept of um, not just having the one one thing, but potentially having multiple one things in some of these buckets. How do we rationalize which buckets? Like, how do we determine which buckets we have? And then, how do we uh, justify making one of the things in those buckets? or a few of those things in those buckets, one of the one thing. I know there's an algebraic statement. (laughs) Go ahead, Lee. I I think that takes you to the reflection that he asks you to do earlier in the book, as well as in this section about, okay, what is or are my one things in those spaces? It, It is the piece that's really hard to write down in any methodology. GTV doesn't really tell you how to do it either. It says figure out what your big goals and purposes are and then break those down. And I think this is a a little bit more laid out approach to what to do with that once you've figured out what those big things are. But that's just a kind of personal reflection and what's important to me and answer the what do I want to do, what's my purpose question, and then see where that takes you to break it down into the to the buckets and, and the what you're going to put. And this is my point in any conversation when we talk about like 
anything about areas of focus or what your life buckets are. I call them life categories. Uh, you know, um, uh, what is it? Tony Robbins calls them categories of improvement, I suppose. You know, it's like if you are in that space, I highly, highly recommend reading The Eighth Habit by Dr. Stephen Covey. I think it's probably one of the best books on the topic and not because you necessarily need to follow it, but it just gives you this context within which everything else you think about in terms of life really rests well. And it solves for the missing element people talk about in getting things done that I think gets some of it gets answered in making it all work. And I think that what, what David Allen without putting too many words in his mouth, but like what he, what he's saying in making it all work is that the answer to why, right? Purpose at the top of, of uh, the horizons uh, or the highest levels in the horizons are answered de facto by the organization within which you're working, the family in which you are in. Um, and that those are, those are the, the reigning um, answers to the question of why. And the eighth habit provides a different structure. I also tend to recommend uh, Find Your Why, which is the Simon Sinek book uh, that was written after Start With Why. That's a wonderful exercise as well uh, that I've done now. And I've experienced um, a good amount of answering those questions from those pieces, considering the fact that um, I started off with a pretty strong why up front. You know, I've, I've had for most of my adult life, a very strong why. And so coming at any of these materials, I'm always curious, like if I just disregarded my why, would I come up with the same why at the end of it? And uh, and and I found that with Find Your Why, I did. And it was very unique to find the, to follow the very circuitous path that Find Your Why takes you to and still end up at the same place and uh, without trying, you know, I really wasn't, wasn't um, thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to navigate myself toward that, that same spot. But it's, it was very clear in, in following that exercise with, you know, you get a partner and you, it's a, a pretty lengthy, lengthy process of, of going back and forth in one seating through this process and you, you come to that why. And it was actually really remarkable, you know, to see this very stark parallel between what I had determined uh, at that point, you know, 25, 30 years ago and what is today, um, you know, still resonant within me. So that's pretty cool. Um, any other thoughts in terms of finding your, uh, your purpose, finding that, that um, um, direction and the buckets, kind of how you see the buckets of your life? I, I found it very helpful. Uh, this what his what I what I got as his approach. It might not be what everyone else gets as his approach, but um, I'm I really struggle with writing goals. I mean, I write goals, but as soon as I write a goal, I have resistance, like massive resistance, and I don't know exactly why that is. But um, the idea of having these buckets, and I can envision what I want, but sitting down and writing out a by this date, you're going to, you know, directive goal puts me in, let's go, you know, watch Netflix. Um, so just, I have a vision of things I want in my different areas of my life. And I found it really kind of empowering to be able to, well, I'll just do the next, you know, the next action, the next, what's the one thing that's going to make a huge difference in this area of my life. And I don't think it's that different than if I sat down and wrote the goal and then came up with the next steps that would lead me, lead me to that goal. But for some reason, psychologically for me, 
not have not having that resistance is a big difference of being able to say, oh, I just have to figure out the next thing that's going to make a huge difference in this area. Any other thoughts? Okay, I want to I want to flash forward a little bit into something that really resonated with me in the most recent reading of it. And I'm, I'm curious about everybody's thoughts here. And then we can we can get any final questions, thoughts people had about the book before we close out. But my um, he he asked this question about living a life of no regret. And and it really um, stood out for me because I I certainly regret things in life. <laughs> like I have things in life that I definitely regret. Um, at the same time, um, I'm not going to let those hold me back from living my life. You know, you just kind of have to put those things aside and move on. And um, and so I'm I'm just really curious about your thoughts are on the subject of really what he means by living a life of no regret. He doesn't mean that you can't regret anything ever, that kind of thing. But um, what did what does that mean for you? Like I'm I'm really curious about what that means to you in terms of setting goals where you you don't regret going in that direction, and you're spending precious hours, days of your life in pursuit of those things once you determine that path forward and yeah what does it mean not to regret those those forks in the road in life so, so for me that was that was a mix of of other things that re- that resonated very heavily with me um so one of the things that you hear is like you could die tomorrow so live life to its fullest so there's a piece of that um i have a quote on my wall by um, Massimo Vignelli that was a New York Times Magazine um, cover, One Life is Too Short for Doing Everything, um, which, which is the whole no thing. So the no regrets thing for me is just sort of the other side of the coin of figuring out what's important to you and spending your time doing that and, and getting towards the things that you've decided are really important to you. And as Linda noted, they'll change. Um, but as long as you're doing the, the quote, right things, then you should reduce the amount of regret you have about how you spent your time. It's kind of like the, okay, will you ever be remembered for how many emails you answer um, kind of thing? That's probably not important. So spend your time on the things that you really, really want to have happen and that will bring you happiness or fulfillment or whatever. And to me, what it meant was if you're regretting things and you're spending time on the past, your focus is there and you can't change the past. That if you're looking at that next right thing, that next one thing, you're focused on the future and if your focus is there, you can't be spending all the time on regret and spending that time in the past. And, and of course, we all make decisions that if we had that decision to make again, that we would make a decision. You know, everything from uh, a job to what you ordered for lunch. But, you know, once it's done, it's done. And, you know, it can influence future decisions. If the, a past decision was not good, then when the opportunity presents itself again, you can make a better decision. I, I have the same. Uh, so for me, regretting things that I've done in the past is in the same bucket as thinking about what people are going to think about me when I'm dead. To me, they're both kind of futile. It's like I can't change the past and I have no control over what people think about me when I'm dead. I may be the most fabulous person and done wonderful things and everyone hates me for some reason. <laughs> I mean, I don't really have control over what other people think. So those two ends don't 
really make a difference. It's like, to me, it's what am I doing right now? Because the moment you're in is really the only moment you have. We could all die tomorrow or today or whenever. And so thinking about, I'm not as future focused in my mind because I don't know what the future is going to hold. So I'm like, I want to worry about what I'm doing now. What am I doing today? How am I spending my time? is more important to me than what's going to happen or how I'm going to feel when I die. The people I've been at their deathbeds, none of them have ever expressed regret. So maybe I just am surrounded by lovely people, but I've never heard people on their deathbed say, oh, I wish I had done this or I missed out on that. And I'm not talking about Steve Jobs. I'm talking about just normal everyday people who just lived lives. So I, I think I have a different view, I think, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here, but I have a lot of thought about how people are going to think about me after I'm dead. <laughs> I spend a lot of time I'm thinking about I'm not saying I don't this. think about it. And... I'm just saying it's in the same bucket as regret because I do regret <laughs> things and I do think about it. But to oh. me, it's in the same bucket. So that, let me do the disclaimer. I'm not, I'm not a guru. Fair, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, uh, but, but the, the reason I think about it is not for that reason, which is it's not about regret. Maybe it is. I mean, there's probably some form of it is regret, which is that I believe that the output in my life is my legacy, and that legacy is my immortality. So if I put out good work in the world, if I do the right things to help people in the world, and it's not to, for me to be remembered necessarily. So it's not, it's my work to, that should be remembered. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not self-focused. Like I don't care if anybody knows my name after I'm gone, maybe my family. I hope, <laughs> I hope um, at least a few generations remember me, but, uh, but beyond that, I don't particularly care about that notion. But what I do care about is that the work I put into the world helped people. And that, that was, that is enduring. And so that's the part that I think is most regretful create or like regret generating for me is that I'm going to do work and I'm going to do so such so much of it and then it will it will have been for naught or I didn't take advantage of work that I could have done uh, that that could have turned into that output that could have been so useful to people and and I look through everything through that that lens which kind of um, absurdly makes me not regret much <laughs> because I you know like if I have a productive day. And I know that I've I've done everything I possibly could in a day to to make that output happen, to work on those focused goals, uh, what what Keller's calling the one thing. If I'm working on those things, then I feel like at the end of the day, I can feel like this sense of relief that I did as much as I could toward doing that output, which will make me feel like that immortality is there, that that future output is going to help people in the future, not just today, but tomorrow and next week and next year and years to come. And that work gives me some solace that, I don't know, that the world is good, that humanity is good, uh, and that we have we have something to look forward to. But Wait, so, I, I think so, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say to me, and Ray, you actually are the perfect example of what you just said, is that if you live on purpose, right, like if you have identified your purpose or your purpose for the different buckets if you actually stuck to if you follow his course right you do the one thing or you plan it out and you live on purpose uh, which is connected to the one thing you're not going to have as many regrets right because you're moving in the direction that you've identified your why or your purpose I, you know, to me, my regrets come from I know what my purpose is or I know kind of 
the one thing, for example, in my work, but I spend my entire day answering emails or so, you know, like I didn't, I didn't take the course towards my purpose and that's where the regret comes in. But I do agree. I, um, um, with, uh, with, with other people said, I don't spend too much time on regret because unless you're going to take a lesson from that, it's just time wasted. Um, but so I think to your point, I, that's kind of, to me, it's like, if you've identified your purpose and I'm having hard times figuring that out, but if you've identified it and you actually follow the path and stick to it, you, you have a lot less regret because you're doing what you believe is like your why. You know, it's too personal. Right. So you're you're saying that kind of regret is the is the gulf between uh, is basically the gulf that creates um, a lack of integrity. Right. Which is like what you want to do versus what you are doing. That right. that gulf is is basically the regret. I can see right. that. Yeah. Because I think, it, it, you know, each person is going to have their own why and you and I are not going to have the same one. And so even though maybe if I was to do the same exact thing to me, it would be well, why did I spend my time doing that? And I would regret doing that activity. But to you, if that moves you closer to where you want to be, you've walked away from at the end of the day thinking you've had a productive day and you've moved closer to um, where you want to be. Linda? I was just going to say, you know, you have a much larger influence, I think, Ray, on the actual people who are here now. I mean, to me, that's the, that's the focus is reaching now the people because what happens in the future is like who knows what fashions will be or what you've what you've left behind is important at that time or if somebody has taken it to another level and now it's so i think it's i mean i think we're all sending out this like we all connect with others in different ways and i think we're all impacting other people by what we do and how we live but i think that impact is much greater in the present than it is in the future because the future the future never comes. We're always in the present, right? I mean, it's like constantly looking towards the future to me is like, okay, there's, there's no end in sight. But if you're focused on what you're doing now and how you're living now, that's the thing you can actually have an influence over. Like I can make a decision right now. I can't make a decision in two weeks. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a part of it is that I've been, I've been so present-minded my entire life. I feel this sense of control over my present that I, that I appreciate very much. And that makes me think about the future more remarkably, right? And I don't think about it in a, in a, in a, in a perverse way, right? Like it's, it's a, I, I'm in right relationship with the future. Um, I very infrequently think about the past other than in like reflecting on like, oh, that was a pleasant memory looking at, you know, holiday uh, travel and uh, thinking fondly about it. It's, it's the future that I can, that I can manifest, which really kind of like makes me excited and 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 I think that's that's part of it. It's the it's the it's the opportunity to be able to make the future the present at some point. Which it explains our difference because I've lived in the past and the future my whole life and I'm trying to be more present. So we're just in different places. Yeah, and, and it's funny yeah. because I mean there are a lot I've of always been regret or looking at what the future's gonna hold, worrying, and I'm trying to just deal with right now. So that makes sense. Yeah, and it helps to reduce reduce worry when present-mindedness can can reflect on other you know modes of time periods of time and be that distant observer right know that it's there and be okay with it you know so um we're we're coming to the close of our time together and uh and so i just want to make sure we get any final thoughts and comments any of you might have about 
the one thing. Frank, I saw you starting to talk, and I, I apologize. I Well, I, I was just going to piggy, piggyback on the last thing that was said. And, and uh, yeah, Alan Lakin, one of the great time management gurus from years past, he said planning is taking the future and bringing it into the present so that you can do something. Um, and a, a wise minister once talked about that seeing the future is as friend that the way that you look at the future influences the decisions that you make right here and now on the things that you can actually do something about that in turn influence the things that happen. All right. Any any final thoughts? And then if everybody wants to tell us, tell me whether or not you would recommend or not recommend the book. Who wants to who wants to start with recommend or not recommend? I'll, so, I'll, yeah, go ahead, Lee. I would definitely recommend um, with the caveat that you have to stick with the book. Um, as with many, many, many how to improve things book, he has his little quirks, his lists of words that he labels things with, his little systems, which for some people may work great. They happen to annoy me. Um, but the fundamental concepts that he's after in this book, I think, are extremely valuable. Um, I got a lot out of my fast read. And as I said before, um, I'm going to go back and, and do some more work with this because um, I think I can improve my system significantly taking some. I would agree with what Lee said. Um, you know, so many books, they really tell you everything in the first chapter and then they spend the rest of the book just giving examples of what they told you in the first chapter. This one's entirely different. Um, the further you get in the book, the more you really understand what he's talking about. And and the more relatable, at least for me, it became to my own life. Um, I will recommend the book in short. Me too. I agree with everything that everybody said. I think you have to stick through the book and get to the end. I think the end was was a breath of fresh air and a little bit of relief that you don't have to pick just the one thing, which probably gave me anxiety through half the book. But, uh, and I like how he, and he, and, you know, if you look at it, he does break it up. You know, he has the one part, two part, the three part, I guess the third part, right? I think it's the third part, the implementation part of it. Um, so I, I agree. I think it's a good book. You just have to actually finish it. Can I just Fantastic. say one more thing, Ray? Yeah, uh, go for it. The, the beginning of the book talks about the lies about success, which we did not talk about, which I thought were extremely valuable. So yeah, definitely check that out. It was a good, it was a good section. Okay, we have reached the end of our uh, discussion about the one thing, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary res results by Gary Keller with Jay Papasan. So a couple of comments and announcements. Um, for those of you who are listening to the recording of this, uh, we host these live discussion um, discussions of personal productivity books. Uh, so just like the one you just listened to, uh, you're invited to come join us. If you head over to productivitybookgroup.org and visit the upcoming books page, you'll find the details to that. Uh, it has all the dates for the year and a handy Google calendar and all kinds of other fun things. I've also launched a digital community that you can join. Uh, and if you go to productivitybookgroup.org forward slash community, you can join the community and uh, find out all the details there as well and discuss any other productivity books you might be wanting to discuss with us. So feel free to bring up a t another book that you're there you're reading and uh, feel free to go ahead and uh, discuss that book. Um, our next book is going to be uh, Essentialism. 
by Greg McCowan. And uh, so kind of staying in the theme, right? Uh, but Essentialism by Greg McCowan is going to be our next book. It's going to be a little bit earlier than we normally would discuss it just because uh, the fourth Wednesday of December, I think, is like Christmas Eve's Eve. Uh, and then the week after that is New Year's Eve. Uh, or New Year's Eve's Eve, and I just don't want to be too close to the to those dates. So we're going to do that on December 16th, uh, 2020, will be our next discussion, uh, and that will be of Essentialism by Greg McCown again, and uh, so that you all know the next book. Uh, of course, you can always uh, subscribe to Productivity Book Group to the podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and otherwise. And uh, feel free to leave a, a rating, a review if you want to uh, let us know how we're doing. That, of course, helps us expand our readership and brings new readers and callers to the fold. So thank you for spreading the word to help other productivity book lovers find us. And with that, thanks everyone for joining us here for Productivity Book Group. I'm Risa D. Smith. Here's to your productive life.